Hey everybody, this is Phil Town. And this is Danielle Town. We're here for the Invested Podcast, coming to you direct from Zurich, Switzerland. Here is Switzerland. Welcome to Switzerland, Dad. Thank you. It's so great. It's really, really beautiful. I moved here recently because my husband lives here, my new husband, and and now Dad is visiting. And I'm having so much fun. Um, Nuno is a Duke MBA amazing consultant to the banking industry, in particular private banking. And um, we had this gigantic talk yesterday. You guys are hilarious. We went you guys le- like what? literally took over the entire day. The entire day. And just sat in the kitchen and discussed, well, first, because I wanted to talk about it, valuation. I've, I've been trying to figure out valuation. Right. And then that got into like actual... Uh, non-layman valuation, shall we say, like valuation that's a little more complicated well, than well, what, we what went, we've been doing. We went from the idea that you have to um, put a price on risk. And and we use what we call a minimum acceptable rate of return, um, or the MAR. 15%. Of 15%. So we sort of set the bar at, like, we're going to invest in companies, um, but we're pricing in. In other words, we're going to pay a price that reflects the risk and and that means we need to get a very good rate of return for the trouble we're going to go to well that's what nuno said and that's what that's i agree what, oh you agree with sure. that that's rule one 101 we have to we have to put an uh, a higher rate of return than what we would get if we just put our money in a t-bill which has no oh, yeah. risk okay. Okay. right yeah. so a t-bill pays two percent we're looking for 15 percent. so we're, we're pricing in a pretty substantial risk premium um, in order to figure out what the value of the business is today. And then beyond that, we're discounting it by 50%. So we're really building in a huge, huge price discount. Um, so I'm just going to mention where we are for the people who didn't hear last week's episode, ah, okay. which I don't know what you're doing. Go listen to it. <laughs> but we've been doing, we've been doing um, a long series called Back to Basics, where we've been listening to Charlie Munger Um, In an interview he gave, discuss his four principles of investing, which are very simple. We are now on number four. So his four principles are that you must be capable of understanding the business. The business has to have an intrinsic characteristic that gives it a competitive advantage or a durable durable one. That's called a moat. That's Mm -hmm. the colloquial term. the third is that we would like to have management with integrity, which, frankly, I have turned into required management with integrity. And then the fourth one is a price that makes sense. Right. And we are now on the fourth one. We've discussed it a few days. We talked about quick and dirty valuation last time. Yep. And that's what's led to this conversation in the kitchen all day long yesterday. Yep, because what Nuno does is set up products for private banks that they can provide to their clients, most of whom are wealthy people. Um, and most of these products are built, or many of these products are built on the principles of modern portfolio theory. And you all know how I think about that. So we we got into a pretty significant discussion about how do you do this, right? So from our side, just real simply, we look at individual businesses as a business and we look at these characteristics that Daniel just went through in order to figure out if we want to own the business that is that it's a wonderful business to own for the long term 
And then we figure out a price on it based on, or a value of it based on this, uh, these concepts we've been talking about. And this is very different than the way everybody else invests. I mean, they, everybody, everybody else, else does it like differently. The standard banking world. Yeah. Right. right. Like you walk into chase and because you have enough money, you get to be a private client and they say, here's what you should do. And they base that stuff on modern portfolio theory, right? Yes. And so do the non-person advisors who you could give your money to, like Betterment and oh, Wealthfront, yeah. Yeah, yeah. who also use the same uh, structure that Nuno was talking about yesterday, which, um, which we could call modern portfolio theory, but they often use the term capital asset pricing model. In other Oof. words, how do you figure out the value of this thing? Right? How do you price a capital asset? Capital asset pricing model is a form of valuation. It is a form of valuation. It's a form of valuation. Okay. Right? And it's really, really fascinating. I learned more about it yesterday than in all of the reading I've ever done because Nuno <laughs> happens to be the guy at his class who explained it to everybody at Duke. He really is good at this. I mean, he's an expert at it. People pay him a lot of money to travel all over the world, I mean, everywhere, Africa, Dubai, you know, Hong Kong, uh, to consult the banks on these issues. And these issues boil around the idea of risk, right? And so Nuno was asking, well, how do we price in risk? And I talked about the minimum acceptable rate of return. And we, yeah. we sort of slid into a discussion about risk, which the rest of the world uses uh, to figure out how to put together a portfolio. So we're trying to figure out what's mm -hmm. risk, you know? Mm -hmm. So if I asked you what's risk, what would, what, you know, the risk of buying IBM, what would you say is the risk? The risk is that you lose your money. Right. That's the, that's the downside of a mistake, right? Yeah. You lose your money. And so that's the quantifiable amount that you would lose. Um, but let's put it another way. Like if you were snowboarding, a double black diamond, there's a risk. Now, obviously, the result of an error is that you get hurt, right? Uh -huh. Yeah. But what's the risk? What is the risk that you're taking snowboarding? I'm not following what type of answer you would like. Well, I know it's hard to figure out what I'm saying, actually. So, Because <laughs> I would say the risk is that you get injured. Did you get injured. But, it, but you're going to get injured how? By making an error. Right, by making a mistake with the board or making a mistake in your judgment on when to turn or something like that, right? Or, you know, snowboarding over like a ball of ice and right. getting thrown off or something. So an unexpected so an error thing, doesn't, yeah, it doesn't necessarily mean you screwed up. Right. You might hit a rock that you couldn't see. Yeah. So the, but there are things that are potentially can happen to you that would result in you, you know, breaking a leg or in investing would result in you losing your money. Yeah. Right. And those things. Oh, so the risk that you're talking about is is things happening. Yeah. Things not happening. The, not the end result, but things happening. Right. Things happening. So the old sh happen things, you know, <laughs> sort of deal. So you you think about that in a stock. And what Nuno was pointing out is that in his world, like so in, in my world, your risk is in not understanding what it is you're buying. Yeah. Right? That's where your risk I mean, lies. that's Munger point number one. Munger point number one. Be capable of understanding the business. Right. And from that, if you're capable of understanding the business, then the risk is that you 
incorrectly made a judgment about the moat. That is that the this thing that you thought would make this company safe and durable and long-term and would result in you getting the cash you expected wasn't true, right? That would be a mistake. Well, that's, yeah, I mean, that's one kind or of mistake. Or it breaks. Or, right. Right? It wasn't as durable as you thought it would be. Right, because of maybe stuff that is outside of the company. Sure. You're a harness-making company, like my great-grandfather was in Otomo, Iowa. He made harnesses for horses and buggies and so on, rigging for horses, right? And that was that was the equivalent of making a typewriter right before the computer comes in. Yeah. You know, here comes the automobile and that whole industry goes away. Or your BlackBerry and the iPhone shows up. Your BlackBerry and the iPhone, yeah. So you have risk of the moat being broken that you really have to take into consideration. And when Charlie's talking about being capable of understanding, that's what he wants you to be able to understand is mm. how how mm. how strong is this moat? How mm. how do you see anything on the horizon that's going to make this moat go away? Where are the weak points? Right. On the moat. Right. Exactly. Mm. So for example, in the financial services industry, financial advice, the moat that financial advisors used to have is being broken by technology. Right. So Betterment and Wealthfront are those websites are charging like a quarter of a percent yeah. to manage money. Yeah. And they manage it just as well as a live manager because they're all a live manager is just going to use the same capital asset pricing model that that Betterment uses. It's just going to do it automatically for a quarter point. So that guy's a dinosaur. If that's all he's providing, that's going to go away. So that moat is broken. And. And you can see it in the actions of that, like Nuno was telling me, in the actions of these private banks, is they are just moving away from small clients. Hmm. They don't want your business because your business is going to go away. They know it's going to go away. Um, so the only reason you'd still buy harnesses is because you don't really realize how valuable a car is, you know? Or the only reason you keep using a typewriter is because you're sort of a Luddite and you haven't figured out you really ought to start up using a computer. So that's yeah. what's going on in the financial services industry. And I think it's pretty clear they're doing that to an outside observer. You know, like they're not going after more clients. They're not advertising. No. They're, they're focused on the upper echelon because those are the people who are going to make them the money. And this, this, is, this has been underway now for well over a decade. I remember, I think in 1999... Merrill Lynch got caught putting out a memo, the head of Merrill Lynch's marketing guys or something, put out a memo that said to all of its brokers, don't bother with people who have less than $100,000. They're wasting your time. You don't have, you don't I mean, get I'm, enough income on the new, on the new compensation structures to make it worth it. I'm surprised that number is even that low. I know. Well, well you, I think probably today it's probably don't bother with people under a million. It's no, it wouldn't be that. At least talking to the guys I've talked to, they're going to the younger beginning um, financial advisors are are taking people with three or four hundred thousand, five hundred thousand. And a lot of firms, five hundred thousand is the, the floor, mm -hmm. you know. And and what you'll find is if you're a client with five hundred thousand dollars, your your financial advisor is looking to get rid of you. <laughs> Because they can only handle so many people. And as they fill up their dance card, 
yeah. they're going to be looking to drop the low end yeah, numbers yeah. off and yeah. you're going to go away. Yeah. So Betterment and Wealthfront, they're going to get all of that kind of stuff for people who don't know enough about investing to manage to manage their own money. And of course, the problem with putting your money with financial advisors and, and or Wealthfront and Betterment is that the way they invest will almost certainly guarantee you a mediocre return. That's their goal is to uh, provide a mediocre return in exchange for low risk yeah. and no work. Yes, that's that is exactly their value proposition. Yep. I think that's right. And if you have enough of an income and you start soon enough, that value proposition will work for you. Well, good for those people. <laughs> <laughs> How nice. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Unfortunately, for people who are, let's say, 45 to 50 years old and they have not saved up a million dollars yet, um, they got a different set of problems. Because if the market does what it's likely to do now for the next 20 years or so, and that is, it, you know, it's been going up like a rocket for many, many years, and it's likely to not continue to do that forever. So we end up with an overall rate of return on the market of maybe 5%. And that's going to be a real problem for people who haven't saved enough money and only have 20 years to go. That 5% will double their money in 15 years. So if you've got 20 years to retirement, the money you've got today is going to double only once and a little bit more. So if you've got $100,000 today, you'll have $250,000 or something at, at age 65, 20 years from now, if the market does what it's doing. And if you're not diversified out into bonds, which will even do worse, you're going to end up with not enough money by not even close. You know, you'll have a tenth of the money you need. Yeah, that's scary. So, and this is a, a shocking statistic is that 45% of Americans have no money saved up, like zero. So, <laughs> I mean, I get it. Yeah, I get it too. Life is Life more expensive is, yeah. all the time. And as we've talked about, you know, what do you do in a world where, you know, through the assistance of government, housing prices have gone up massively faster than, than uh, your income mm -hmm. through the assistance of government? In other words, making money more available than it would have in the market. College educations now have put people right. behind the eight ball. I mean, between housing and student loans. Yeah. It is hard to get going. Yeah, it's really, and that is 100% because of government loans and government guarantees artificially making the market have more cash than it should have had. And the result of that inevitably is the rise of prices. And that's what's happened with colleges and it's what's happened with housing. So now we, you know, when my, I was a baby, my dad bought a home for one year's salary as, as a, a, a just a bookkeeper with Standard Oil. You know, that's somebody making $40,000 today. You know, so things have just enormously changed against us as the little guy. So we have to save more and more and more and more money mm -hmm. to deal with housing and so on. Now, well, how, I'm depressed now. Well, Jeez. here, let me let me let me tell you how the other side's going to do it. If you didn't want to invest on your own, let's talk about this. And this is what Nuno and I talked about yesterday at length. How do the other guys do it? How does your wealth manager if you're somebody wealthy, manage your money. And and the answer is someone who's wealthy has a different set of problems than most of us. Yeah, I would say that's true, Dad. Right? Yeah. Like like their diamond shoes are a little too tight. Their diamond shoes are a little too tight. <laughs> we call these first world problems. After we just discussed how like housing and student loans are destroying all of us. Yeah. I'm like, I have no 
empathy right now <laughs> for their other for the, problems for the wealthy the problems of the wealthy well i can tell you what their problem is the problem what, is what are the problem what are your problems the problem of the wealthy tell is, me about your problems do you not have enough polo horses <laughs> well do you that, need some that more? is true oh it's tough and oh. also is my your trailer not too quite small. big enough for all of your horses oh. you have it nailed oh. these are all first world problems so i sad. know Rough one, rough one. But at the base of these problems is the really scary problem for wealthy people, and that is they become not wealthy. Well, that that's is, scary. That is certainly so. Scary. The problem isn't please get me enough money so I can have more polo horses, although that would be nice. That's <laughs> not the problem. The problem is oh, um, you have to go back to work for McDonald's. Yeah, yeah. So this is a huge difference in the way you invest, and since. Almost all money management is oriented toward that class of people. Preserve the capital. Preserve the capital. At all costs. At all costs. Just don't lose the nest don't egg. Don't lose the nest egg, which is ironic, isn't it? Because rule one is don't lose money. And rule two is don't forget rule one. So here we have a totally investment strat different strategy, massively different than what is used by almost all financial advisors and, and fund managers, and yet with the same basic focus which Absolutely. is don't lose money i mean i don't care i get that like somebody who let's say had grew up with a trust fund has never worked and you know expects to continue that life does not want to lose their money like i can i can get that i can put myself in that situation but actually they probably don't know enough about what it's like not to have money to really be that worried about not having money <laughs> <laughs> i would argue it's the newly wealthy who are the most scared because they I know would, what it's like <laughs> But I would add to that that all the rest of us who work and, you know, have been saving the money if we can also don't want to lose our money. Like, I'm not sure there's actually a difference in the problem of the wealthy and the problem of the less wealthy on our way kind of people. There's, there's probably no difference in terms of the, the desire, but the difference comes from this. If you're wealthy... You can focus, you can take a strategy in your portfolio, which um, provides you a, a mediocre return in exchange for very little risk. Oh, and then you just live on that return. And you just live on that return. Yeah. If you're not wealthy, yeah, yeah. you have to go after a higher rate of return. Yeah, because we don't have enough to live on the return. Which typically would mean you're taking a lot more risk. Okay. But what we want to do is we want to get the higher return and not take the higher risk. And that's where rule one style investing comes in. And this is what Charlie is saying. You can get a very high return with very low risk if, and I would say only if, you really understand the business, you do nail the moat, it's got a great one, management isn't going to screw you, and you buy it at a great price. Then, and only then, can you have some degree of certainty that you're going to really make high returns. Yeah. Well, I mean, this sounds like a good commercial for rule and investing. It is. <laughs> it is. What's the, but let me. What let, were you thinking of? Well, from... I was thinking that I wanted to tell you what the what the rest of the world gets to experience when okay. they do when they go to Wealthfront or Betterment or use a financial advisor, and they need to get higher rates of return. What's going to happen, right? And what what's going to happen is that they're all these guys use the same basic model for determining how to set up a portfolio. And this is what I learned from Nuno yesterday, which is just fascinating to me. And that is that the basic model that everyone uses simply says, we are not going to look at the company itself. 
Hardly at all. In other words, we're, we're going to assume that whatever this company is in terms of safe or risky, good or bad, we can massively diversify away from that risk. So instead of being capable of understanding the business, instead of knowing whether it has a moat, instead of understanding the management team, and instead of understanding the value, we're simply going to substitute massive diversification and make the assumption that if we buy enough stuff, many of those will be good yeah. and offset the losses from those that are bad. And we will end up with our sustainable, mediocre rate of return, which is all our wealthy clients want. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Okay, good. That's pretty standard. Pretty standard. I mean, that's what everyone asks me. Well, what about diversification? Yeah. Well, that's why they diversify. Right. No, that's why it's like in people's minds because they're so used to being told they should own a hundred stocks. And if they don't, then they've exposed themselves to massive amounts of risk. Yep. And in modern portfolio theory, risk has a name. It's called beta. Oh, beta. Beta is risk in modern portfolio theory. But beta is volatility. Yes, Beta oh, so is this is volatility. the old volatility equals risk thing. Volatility equals risk. But it's not as clean as that. This is what Nuno taught me yesterday. Well, let's describe what beta is first. All right. So first, what I thought beta was, was simply the amount of movement of the stock price. Can I back up even a step before that for people sure. like me who until yesterday had Fire never... <laughs> so beta is just, is just a name that somebody gave to... Uh, to the, the movement of a stock, right? I'm just gonna say it broadly. I know that you're gonna get into it. But um, but so, cause it just, it just makes no sense like when you just hear about it like this. Right. So what it is, is like a small number. Like it'll be 1.5 or right. 1.8 right. or 0.7. Yeah. And it's always around one because the market is one. Right. And then the other number that is the beta of that company is a number in relationship to the one. So it's either, either less or more than the one, which indicates that that company has moved more or less than the market overall. Yep. And so when you, you can actually Google companies beta, like you put in beta of Apple and it'll come up like it's just a number that's just known in the financial industry, and it literally, like, if you look on Yahoo fin on Yahoo Finance at a company, and you go to the financial part, it'll list like the stock price, and I don't even know what else. And there's there's a little line that says beta, and then there's a number next to it. Right. And if you didn't know what beta was, as I didn't, you just skip right over it. But now that I know what it is, it's like, oh yeah, it's just kind of everywhere. Like, yeah. This is a very standard number, this beta thing. Yep, and it's used by Betterment and Wealthfront and all of these financial advisors to help build your portfolio. All right. Now, here's what's really cool about understanding beta is beta is something that's useful in a portfolio of other companies in a broadly diversified portfolio like they're mm -hmm. going to build for you and every virtually everywhere else. Mm -hmm. Beta is important because what it tells you is the first thing is because you're diversified, you're not going to worry about what they call non-systemic risk. In other words, the risk that's going on in the company itself about how well it performs. Does it have a moat? Are the managers honest? Is systemic it competitive? Risk, systemic risk would be the risk that comes from the market overall, the economy as a whole, right. stuff that would happen to 
interest everything. rate changes. It happens to everything, yeah. the market as a whole. Whereas what that, they that, call... That company can't do anything about. Oddly, it's called unsystemic risk instead of, instead of non-systemic. I don't yeah. know. But when you look it up, it says unsystemic risk, which I think is weird. Um, and that would be all those things that are specific to To company. a company. Yeah. Now, amazingly, when we do rule one investing unsystemic or non-systemic risk, the things that are risky about that company. Let's just call it non-systemic non-systemic. I find unsystemic really irritating. Yeah, right. So do I. But non-systemic risk, those things that are risky about the company you're going to buy because it has a really great mode or not a good mode or whatever, modern portfolio theory doesn't care about any of it. They don't even discuss it. It's not an issue. Because why? Because you're going to diversify massively, and therefore you don't need to consider all of those issues. Think about this. What Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger do is only consider those issues. Yeah. Now, meanwhile, modern portfolio theory is over here considering very carefully systemic risk. Very. I mean, that's <clears> what <throat> beta is all about. That's what beta is all about. Beta isn't the risk of the company. It's the risk of the company moving in a way that can't be diversified against. Hmm. In other words, you can diversify away all of the issues about the company being a good or bad company. What you can't diversify away is the market going up and down and taking that company up and down with it. Sure. Once you're, once you're in the market, you're subject to the market. Yeah. And so what these guys want to do is they want to create a portfolio where at any given level of risk, like, hey, take a lot of risk, try to make me some money, or don't take any risk, don't make me any money, just want to make sure I preserve everything, that they get from their client. They want to build a portfolio that, first off, is diversified away from any of the business risks that you have. So diversification takes care of that, theoretically. And then they want to make sure that they haven't accidentally stuck a bunch of stuff in there that goes nuts if the market goes a little crazy. Right. And that's what that's why they use this concept of beta. How crazy does this stock get if the market gets a little crazy? Does it get twice as crazy meaning or half like, as crazy? Meaning by crazy, you mean like how the, much the price is moving, moving up or down. The market moves one, one and the stock moves a hundred. Yeah. Or three or something or like three. that. Right? Okay, so it's a percentage. It's 300 <laughs> percent more than the marketer. So if, if a company has a beta of two and the market goes up or down 3%, this company is likely to move up or down 6%, twice as much. Now, Isn't a beta of two quite high? Yeah, they're that's usually a lot like of beta. One, they're usually one point something. Exactly. Or, or like 0. 0.7, 0. 0.8, 0. Right, right, exactly. So a beta of two is quite high, but tech companies have betas of two all the time, hmm. right? Now, the really wild thing is that it isn't, beta isn't just a matter of seeing that the company is moving a lot compared to the market. Because a lot of that movement could be non-systemic. In other words, it could be because of good and bad things happening in the company itself, which modern portfolio right. theory doesn't care about. Right, totally. So a beta isn't just looking at the stock. Maybe in response price. to the market, but also in response to, to all this other stuff. Yeah, which would probably happen in tandem with whatever macroeconomic could, situation. Could be right, uh, or it could be something like Chipotle Mexican Grill had nothing but good things going on to it in 2009. It was getting more and more cash flow, more and more sales, more and more earnings, more and more stores, more and more people. 
everything was golden in 2009 when the rest of the world was stopping, right? Mm -hmm. But it went down like a brick. Mm -hmm. So the the and that was definitely non-systemic. That was that was systemic. No. Yeah. No, we're it's talking about the movement. the food poisoning thing, right? Oh, that was different. No, that was That's that was recently. Yeah. Yeah, like, food poisoning was non-systemic yeah. movement. What are you talking? I was about? talking about two thousand nine. Oh, the big crash the in two thousand. Yeah, yeah. So here you have this really sophisticated idea that Nuno was explaining to me about beta, which is that beta isn't just visible movement of that stock price on a chart against the S and P five hundred. What they've done is they've figured out... that would be out, a pretty simple calculation. That'd be really simple. But of course it's not. Of course simple. it's not. <laughs> Instead, beta is calculated by first figuring out how much the S&P 500 is varying yeah. on its own uh -huh. against its own average, and then figuring out how much, let's say, Apple is varying against its own average, mm -hmm. and then comparing the two in what's called a covariance analysis... Which don't even try Which to explain. I won't it. even try to explain. It was like uh, I have no words. That was two, three I hours. Have no, exactly. I have no of words. Of running Excel spreadsheets with noons. <laughs> and then running this covariance. Anyone who's listening who does, who's a statistician, yeah. send us an email and explain covariance to us <laughs> because we do not understand. This is pretty it. wild. <laughs> but I can tell you what the formula is. You just take the covariance of the S P and Apple and you divide it by the variance of the S&P. And what you end up with is a much more sophisticated understanding because what it's tracking is just that stuff which is relative to the S&P 500. And it's finding out how much does this move in just, systemic risk. I know that it was a very long conversation and I will take everyone's word for it that you can do that, but I just don't see how you separate those things. I just find it... I'm just going to refer you I'm that just a computer could somehow figure out what is due to the broader market yeah. and what is due to a bonehead CEO. Right. I just don't see. I, I, I don't know. know. Am I nuts? Like, I don't get it. Well, I, in, in a nutshell, if you look at a stock over a long period of time, you're going to get the variance of that stock, mm -hmm. right? Over mm -hmm. a long period of time. And... What you're going to see sometimes is that the variance is way off and it doesn't have anything to do with the market. It has to do with E. coli in the stores, right? But you don't know that. Just the computer doesn't know that. It just knows that there's the market is continuing to do its basic variance. Yeah. The stock should be continuing to do its basic variance, but it didn't. It in did that, something else. In that example, I can accept it. It's all the rest of the time. Companies always doing stuff. Always. It's all the rest of the time when the market's kind of plopping along and the company's kind of plodding along and everybody's kind of doing okay but making some changes but they don't make a whole lot of splash. It's those times when I don't understand how a computer can separate what's systemic and what's non-systemic. Well, you want to know something really great? Yeah. Is it we don't believe in this stuff. So we don't have to figure it out. But, but this is not a belief thing. This is just a calculation. No, it's a little bit more like religion. Oh, it's a lot more like religion so. than it is about math. The math is very good. But if you have the math based on wrong assumptions, for example, that you can somehow use a computer to figure out what's systemic and what isn't, that's there's a question there. Now, I'm not going to argue that they can do it or not do it. What I'm going to tell you is that we don't use beta when we're calculating 
um, the risk of a company. And the, the we, modern meaning who, Charlie who, Munger, Warren Buffett, and me, value and hopefully investors. you. Yeah. What and we take it straight from modern portfolio theory, why we don't use beta. It's really cool. Modern portfolio theory says that beta is only useful in the context of a diversified portfolio. It is completely not useful on a standalone business. To, to put this in perspective, you wouldn't need to use beta if what you're going to do is buy a house and rent it. Right? It's just a standalone business. You're not going to sell it. You're going to rent it. It's a long-term hold. So you don't care about market variations. In other words, you don't care about systemic risk, which is all beta is about. It's just about systemic risk. Beta doesn't tell you anything about the risk of the company itself. Right, right. So that means that, that essentially rule one investing is a completely different highway than modern portfolio investing. It, it, those two don't, they're not talking the same language. Rule one investing is about buying standalone companies without any real reference to a market or a diversified portfolio. Bruce Berkowitz bought City Bank of America and AIG with $18 billion. That is not a diversified portfolio. Warren Buffett has 70% of his money in six stocks. Charlie Munger has 100% of his in three, I think, right now. So these are standalone businesses that we don't care what they're doing in reference to some other market. It doesn't matter. I think that I might agree with your conclusion by completely disagreeing with you. Uh-oh. So I hear you that both systems, modern portfolio theory, value investing, in this analysis of systemic risk, have put aside the non-systemic risk. In both valuation methods involving this, this concern about systemic risk, they have both said, okay, by value investing, it's we've gone through the four principles. We've chosen the companies that we trust, that we are confident are solid companies are going to do well. So in that way, you put it to the side. You've, you've checked that box and you've put it to the side, right? Maybe. Okay, keep going. Whereas in... Um, sort of standard modern portfolio theory investing, you put it to the side without checking the box because what you're going to do is just diversify away from it. Ah, uh, I see. Yeah. In both situations, they're to the side, right? And all we care about is systemic risk at that point. No. Yeah, I think so. We don't care about systemic risk. Of course we care about systemic risk. Why? Why wouldn't you? You need to know if you're buying at the top of the market or at the bottom of the market. You need to know if you see, you know, a war coming... Maybe you're going to choose to make a slightly different kind of investment than you would if a war was about to end. Well, let's take the easy one, buying at the top or bottom of the market. The answer is emphatically no, we don't care. It, we don't have really any reference to the market. It's, it's strictly, um, what's the value of this business or this house or this farm and how much am I paying for it? If, if the value of this thing is 100 and I'm paying 50 I don't care if we're buying at the top of the market or the bottom of the market. It's irrelevant. So systemic risk isn't, a, isn't something we really consider. That's why Warren Buffett, when, when they say, well, Warren, what do you think about the market? He always says, they don't care about the market. We don't refer to the market. Charlie Munger once said that if the Federal Reserve chairman called them up and said where they're going to put interest rates six months from now, 
which is all about systemic risk, right? They wouldn't change a thing that they do. Nothing. So I think we can argue pretty strongly here that we don't consider systemic risk at all. Whereas modern portfolio theory, that's all they consider. So they don't consider non-systemic risk at all because they're going to diversify away from it, as you just said. Whereas that's all we're focused on is non-systemic risk. So when you said we put it aside, I went maybe. We put it aside only after we've considered it like a PhD. Which I said. But like a PhD, I like that. Um, the thing is, I'm struggling because we talk about the market a lot. We talk about what's happening in the market overall. Sure. We talk about... But that's just in reference market. to why so can't I'm, I find I'm, anything? I'm having trouble reconciling this. We don't care about the market at all. We do what we want to do. Okay, so let me put it like, like this. We all care the about discussions it. we have about the market. Yeah, but we care about it only in the sense that Mr. Market is going to get is going to fluctuate, and when it when he fluctuates the market based on some emotion of fear or greed, then we are going to have an opportunity, and the emotion of fear we're going to have the opportunity to buy at really great prices, lots of companies, if we're prepared to do so. And the emotion of greed, we're going to have opportunities to sell those companies at a ridiculously high price. That's our consideration. It, I mean, right now, we're in a market where it's very difficult for us to buy anything. So right. that's the consideration. Why is it hard to buy anything? Well, the market's at 130% of GDP. That's why. So what you're saying is consider it, consider the overall market in the sense of, as I said, like maybe you would want to put your investment in X rather than waiting for a while to get Y. Yeah, I mean, just like think of the market like a weather pattern. You often say stay in cash for a while now. Yeah. You know, those kinds of things. Like have money available if you think something's going to come up. Versus <laughs> what I was suggesting was that uh, the only thing to consider was the overall market trend in terms of figuring out systemic risk. But you're saying in that sense, we actually don't care about systemic we don't care. risk. We don't care. It's only about like, where's your cash? Where's your money? Right. And and that's because we're going to buy 20 companies and we're going to hold them our whole life. And by the way, it, this becomes really cool if you take on a strategy that we'll talk about. I, I'd love to talk about it next time. Yeah. About cash flow itself. In other words, buying companies purely for their cash flow, meaning dividends and buybacks, and we could talk a little bit about how to accelerate that cash flow, maybe, if you want to. We did. We discussed dividends, and you said, ignore them completely. That's in terms of valuing the business. In terms of valuing, yes. Right. Not in terms of... But let's take another look at that in terms of, of getting a company... Sometimes this becomes clearer when we think, if we buy a company that's producing 10% per year cash flow to us, yield, if I buy a company for $100, and every year I get $10 from it... Mm -hmm. um, I don't really care about the market, do I? Just <laughs> well, because in ten years I'm going to have all my money bucks back. Keeps showing up. So I don't have any real market risk out there. Of course, the SEC hates it when I say that, but because there's always some market risk. But in general, if we can get cash flow off a company, we can even care less yeah. about what the market's doing. It's an interesting idea. Let's dive into that next time. What do you think? All right, sounds good. Right. Thanks for listening to Back to Basics, everyone. I think we're <laughs> we're kind of wrapping up Back to yeah, Basics. Cool. Maybe so, next time we call it, we call it something else. Let's call it cash flow. Cash flow. Okay, let's go to cash flow. All right. And let's talk about this stuff. And by the way, we can uh, we can invite you guys, if you want to, to come to our Atlanta workshops. We do um, three days. We'll give you a full scholarship. There's nothing being sold. We're just going to teach you 
how to do this stuff. And uh, we'll have a bunch of coaches there and it's all hands on and pretty cool. That's I'd love you. to have you come. You. That's me. Yeah. yeah. I say we. That's yeah. the royal we. Okay. <laughs> Time to go Thanks, play. Thanks, everybody. See ya. Bye. Hey, thanks for listening to Invested, the Rule One podcast. If you like this episode, you can always get our show notes and more details and links to the resources we discussed at investedpodcast.com. Also, as long as you're online, head on over to investedpodcast.com slash workshop for details on an upcoming three-day live workshop that I'm hosting. All you got to do is enter the special podcast code STOCKPILE, that's S-T-O-C-K-P-I-L-E, STOCKPILE, into the application form, and you guys can attend for free. So everything discussed on this show is either my opinion or it's Danielle's opinion, and it is not to be taken as investment advice because I am not your investment advisor, nor have I considered your personal situation as your fiduciary. This podcast is for your entertainment and education only, and I really do hope you've enjoyed it. So until next week, it's time to go play. See ya.